I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to Raina Hirsch's Prompts in the Pub. My name is Raina Hirsch. I am a comedian and conductor, and this is my unofficial podcast about one of the greatest if not the greatest classical music festivals known to mankind, the BBC Proms, which pitches up every year at the Albert Hall from mid-July to early September and, at the time of speaking, is entering its final week, the final week of the 2022 festival, a week that will culminate with the famous last night of the Proms on September the 10th. If you thought the proms was just the last night, perhaps this long journey through 71 other concerts may at last give it some context. As is the case every year, the temperature hots up in the final weeks and the big orchestral guns come out. This year, as in previous years, that includes the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, who have just given two performances. I was at their second gig last night, and as always, there was a buzz in the audience. Why is that? The quality of the individual players, the commitments of the music right to the back desks of the strings, their ensemble, it all adds up to something electric. And I've now had the pleasure of seeing them many times myself, including at their home stadium, the Berlin Philharmonie. But, as I mentioned previously, their regular conductor, Kiro Petrenko, only conducted the first of their two concerts, owing to a broken toe or something. It's not easy for the casual observer to get to the bottom of exactly what happened, but it did mean a change of conductor for the second. Now, of course, we all understand that there are real people involved in these performances, people who can become ill or otherwise indisposed, as the verbiage goes, Though, if you take that apart, not disposed could sound like couldn't be asked. But since tickets cost up to £72 plus booking fee a pop, I think it's quite reasonable to expect that punters who had bought tickets expecting to see one thing might at least have received notification, a text maybe, they've got all our details, that in fact they were going to see another. There must have been people who turned up to the concert last night who thought that Kirill Petrenko didn't look much like his publicity photos and that Shostakovich's 10th symphony was missing some of its usual Russian oomph. The Berlin Philharmonic concert the day before was the vaunted Mahler 7th symphony, which has been something of a theme during this podcast. Convinced by our various interviewees that I would be missing something if I didn't attend, I was half tempted to pitch up. 
Of course, it had been all sold out since two minutes after booking opened, and you would have to have fingers quicker than a teenager playing the Warhammer video game to get an online proming ticket. Maybe Oliver, the ticket tout, listen to our episode 10, could have helped me out. In the end, rather than do battle outside the Albert Hall, I decided to stay at home and do what I hadn't really done up till now, which was to listen to the concert live on Radio 3. After all, the proms, when all is said and done, is principally a radio concert with a live audience attached. More on that anon. the fact that I have repeatedly dissed it through this podcast I enjoyed the performance of the symphony but had my usual problems with Mahler the canvas in Mahler is so vast one hour 20 minutes or thereabouts even hardened aficionados must acknowledge that it is difficult to appreciate in the way that one appreciates say a symphony by Beethoven most classical music takes work repeated listening basically in the time it takes to go once through Mahler 7 you could almost listen to all three of the last Mozart symphonies instead for your one hour 20 minutes of Mahler you're immersed in a long rambling narrative which winds its way from opening ideas to conclusion repeated listening only a huge investment of time would enable you to make head or tail of it in the case of the seventh symphony the rambling journey takes in tolling of cowbells like real cowbells as seen attached to herds of cows and a mandolin by the way the cowbells in particular seem totally random what on earth was he thinking why stop at the cowbells why not have the whole cow there is one bit of me thinking how great it must be to conduct this music to cue the cowbells. What a marvellous sound. There's another thinking, my life is too short for this. Too short for Mahler in general. I have a strong feeling that his monumental mystery is the main attraction. When listening to Mahler, one is constantly chasing a pattern, a meaning which never quite reveals itself. I've tried, I've conducted bits of the first, I've played the viola in the fourth, I have a couple of complete Mahler cycles on CD, for example. Rossini is supposed to have said about Wagner that he had lovely moments but awful quarter hours. I'm not sure it's quite that, but there is something wrong with a symphony lasting one hour and 20 minutes. Either I am too thick or Mahler is too poor a storyteller. You decide. Regarding the broadcast experience itself, what is most noticeable is how unshowy the Radio 3 presentation is. This is one of the big concerts of the prom season, but unlike the television productions where there are talking heads and general fluffing of the piece we're about to hear, on radio we go to the Albert Hall literally minutes or so before the concert begins. At 6.59, one minute before the curtain up, we were actually listening to highlights from the UK Jazz Festival. You can tell it was jazz because at the end the announcer said, that's nice. Then, 
As soon as it was over, the broadcast went elsewhere. Off they were, Radio 3, to Turkey, Slovenia and the USA with the latest sounds from the world of new music. Despite this, the proms is principally, yes, a radio concert with a live audience attached. As we learn from violinist Tasman Nittle at the very beginning of this series, episode one, the Radio 3 broadcast controls the concert, not the other way round. Whether they know it or not, the world-famous orchestra, the internationally fated conductor, the 5,000-odd people waiting expectantly, none of them can begin their stuff until an announcer in a tiny box to the right of the stage has finished saying their bit. This is BBC Radio th- News, Radio 3 News, with the Radio... Three, rather, with the news. Our guest on today's podcast is a person who has held that power in his hands an uncommonly large number of times, Tommy Pearson. Tommy has been a familiar figure in the UK music world for over 30 years. He started as a percussionist and composer, then, as we'll hear, became one of the busiest voices on BBC Radio, presenting most of Radio 3's main strands, including a few of his own invention. Part of that was, of course, the proms, and its TV equivalent for those handful of proms concerts also selected for broadcast on BBC4, the TV station. So he's done it all and met more names than you can point a microphone at in the process. Well, now it's our chance to meet him. So you started now, right at the beginning, you you went to Maidstone Grammar School, is that right? I did, yes. A wonderful school full of music at that point. Right. Yeah. Is that where you started hitting things with sticks? No, way before then. No, no. I mean, I'd, I'd been hitting hitting drums since, you know, from the from the year dot, really. My mum learnt piano at Kent Music School when I was born, and uh, and so because I was ne- I never wanted my mum out of my sight. They used to put me in my in my little cot on the top of the piano. So everyone says, you know, the vibes went through the piano and up into me, all that crap. But uh, it certainly was mu- music was all around me then. So I started piano when I was about six and drums not that far afterwards. But I was playing percussion in, as a toddler, you know, in little groups at Kent Music School in yeah. Maidstone. Yeah. You were actually, you were a member of Kate Youth Percussion Ensemble. Yes. Yeah, the first we were up, one we were able to get on the programme, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was, I mean, this was a long time ago. This is before percussion became what it is really now. I mean, Evelyn Glennie, the great solo percussionist, really blew it all open, made everybody want to become a percussionist. Yeah. But before Evelyn, there weren't many of us as ensembles. I think the Kent Youth Percussion Ensemble was one of the first, possibly the first youth percussion ensemble in the country. Yeah. And uh, we used to go around all all over the place doing these these pieces for percussion, quite a lot of Steve Reich. And actually I was thinking, with the proms connection, one of the, my favourite proms I ever went to was a three-part prom in, I think it was 1984, so I was early teens. And it was with the BBC Symphony Orchestra and it was the London Symphonietta. And they played pieces by, a fantastic piece, Camel Music Number no. 1 by Hindemith, which I'd never heard before, but I think it's brilliant. No one ever really plays it. It was the premiere of Dominic Muldowney's saxophone concerto with John Hall playing it. And Oliver Nusson conducted his second symphony. It was a massive concert. But in the middle was the Canadian percussion ensemble who called Nexus, half of whom were, were out of Steve Reich and musicians. So for me, they were real legends. And I just sat there totally captivated as they played music for Pieces of Wood by Reich, which I knew really well, which is why I also know that they actually completely cocked it up in yeah. the middle. I don't even, I, I wonder now whether they really did cock it up or whether they just decided to do something different. But they were amazing. 
my mum used to take me. I mean, we were always going to concerts anyway. Always contemporary music concerts. Always. Really? Always the new pieces or at least newish pieces or right. Rite of Spring, you know, which wasn't new, of course, by then, but was still very much seen as a, as a you know, contemporary piece. So it was always that. Those, that was my entire life was contemporary music. Um, in fact, when I ended up at the Academy, I knew, I didn't know very much about Beethoven and Brahms, but I could whistle Mortis Planga Vivas Vogo by Jonathan Harvey. Yeah. Um, it was just one of those odd topsy-turvy ways of doing it. But actually, I, I, I felt very lucky to have had it that way. Because yeah. I got to see some amazing things, amazing pieces. And it, it meant that I was never afraid of the new, I was never afraid of, of the modern however wild it might be. I mean, you know, John Cage came one year to do Roratorio, which was kind of his music with dance with Merce Cunningham, which they, they set up at the proms in the, in the arena, the dance bit, you know, um, floor in the arena. That was, you know, very, very weird, very strange, very out there, but it, I, it never really bothered me. It was always something interesting going on. And I, I just was up for that. My mum was a contemporary dancer as well. So it was always around. So every prom we went, pretty much every prom I can remember going to had either a premiere or something new in it. When I, when I left the academy, I started teaching. My old percussion teacher in Kent decided to leave the area and he wanted me to take over. So I suddenly, at the age of 19, 20, I'm full-time percussion teacher, teaching kids who weren't all that much younger than I was, to be honest. But that was fun. But I knew I wasn't going to do that. For very for, for very long so what I did was I just decided that I would write to Radio 3 and see what they thought of some ideas I had for a program for young people amazingly they wrote back and said actually we're kind of interested in the idea of doing something for young people why don't you come in and talk to us I mean I, I couldn't believe it I've still got the letter I couldn't believe it and I, I specifically remember thinking I ought to wear a scarf. I'm going to go, to, if I'm going to go and meet everyone at Radio 3, I, I need to wear a scarf. I bought a scarf specially. Right. It worked. I mean, whether it was a scarf or not, who knows? Are we talking I scarf or cravat? No, no, definitely scarf. <laughs> not bow tie. You didn't, well, have, you didn't have one under your See, ten years, 10 years before, maybe a cravat would have been the thing. Um, I was only 22 when we started the programme. That was the music machine. Which was music machine. started yeah. in January 1994. Right. And um, I was the youngest by miles, by miles. Critics went with it. They, I think, could see what was happening with Radio 3. And this was a bit of a window into Radio 3 for younger listeners. You know, we were specifically aiming at younger listeners. But we knew perfectly well the vast majority of people listening weren't going to be young. So we had to pitch it for everyone. We didn't want anyone to feel excluded, that's for sure. Um, but we did so many programmes. I mean, my God, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of programmes, all about something different. Yeah, it went from 94 to summer 99, which is a pretty good stab at it, really. Has that had a legacy, do you think? Do you think there are kids out there, or now, you know, with their own three-year-old twins, such as you have, uh, who were turned on to music through those programmes? Have you ever had any feedback like that? I really hope that there are those people. I'm sure there are. And I have, there have been a few weird times. I mean, the thing is, it's weird because on radio, you know, if you want to be unknown, just be on Radio 3 every day for 10 years. Um, but so when someone does come up and say, oh, I used to love your show, 
it, it, it's kind of a surprise and you, you wonder whether they're actually joking. Um, but it has happened a few times, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's very satisfying. There are a few, I mean, the sad thing is the network likes to forget it completely. Um, I'm forever reading, for example, that there's a new Young People show on, the first since Pied Piper, which is always seen, David Munro's show in the 70s, always seen as the kind of, you know, the, the, the gold standard of Young People's programmes on Radio 3, as if we never did anything. Mm. I mean, this happens a lot, of course, on the BBC. They, they do quite like to do that. I've got them all there. I've got an amazing collection of, you know, raw recorded interviews with people, many of whom are now no longer with us, of course. I mean, big names. Because I, I interviewed, like, everybody mm. at one time or another. It was incredible, even Desmond Lynham. I mean, everyone always <laughs> says, who's, who's your favourite person you've ever interviewed? And I, because I've done so many, it's, really, it's hard to remember, of course. And everyone always expects me to say something like Pavarotti or something. Yeah. Definitely Des Lynham, because he is a proper broadcasting legend. I went to his flat in Chiswick, and I couldn't... I mean, I was overwhelmed... I'm, I'm rarely overwhelmed by someone's fame but I was here because there was this perfectly normal lovely guy but he was Des Lynham and the most thrilling thing happened the phone went so he said I'm really sorry I'm really and he answered it and whoever was on the other end was obviously kind of droning on a bit and he's going uh-huh mm, yes mm, yes okay and he was sort of looking at his watch and then at the end he said okay okay bye Motti and it was John Motzer. Of course it was John Motzer. The, uh, there I was sitting there. I was thinking, this is amazing. Des Lynham and John Motzer do actually talk to each other on the telephone in their own time. Isn't that great? <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I started to get also obsessed with the celebrities' toilets. The sheer number, because you, you always go, you know, if you're there, you go to the loo. This number of famous people who have who have baths on plinths. <laughs> I began to think, what's that about? Like even John Peel had a bath on a plinth in the middle of his big bathroom. I don't know. I, I started to wonder what that was all about. But it was a significant number, and I thought maybe I should write a book about famous people's toilets one day because I've been in a lot of them. So listen, at some point, you segued from that into presenting on Radio Three. That is to say, presenting the proms. Yes. Yeah. Which is what this is about. Yeah. And um... well, the proms was the first live program I'd ever done. Okay. Because Music Machine was all pre-recorded. Of yeah. Course. And I was asked to do the proms that year, '94. Uh, which was like the biggest possible thrill because I, I was so steeped in the proms by that point. It, that was so exciting. But it was going to be live, of course. And it was the first thing I'd ever done live. I really wanted to do live because I thought I could do it and I wasn't nervous. I was fairly confident as a presenter, so I thought I've got to do this. Mm. But what they did was, because it was my first one, they, I went along uh, to watch one being done with Natalie Wing. I was a huge fan of Natalie Wien right. Radio 3. She was amazing. She got she had to leave because she said the F word rather famously on in tune once. Really? Um, oh yes. Oh I didn't know that. She she managed to cock up a a name, I think it was a pronunciation of a name. Ooh, she and didn't, before she... the mic was faded out, she said, Oh fuck. Um and that was that, unfortunately. Seriously? But they but yeah, what what was funny about it is that um one of the presenters they they had they tried out in Birmingham because it, it used to come from around the country mm. in tune, and they tried out in Birmingham was Guy Wolfenden, who was a composer at the Royal Shakespeare Company, did all of their productions, and he said something even worse than the F word. He said, "It's ten past six, and you're listening to Classic FM." Oh my God! I was in the studio when it happened. I have never seen people panic. Quite as much as that. Right. Much worse than swearing. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it <laughs> caused so many. It was very funny. <laughs> anyway, so I, um, I, I uh, trailed Natalie Wing right. for that concert. I sat in the little box that we had there in the Royal Albert Hall, yeah. absolutely tiny, and I sat there watching her do it. And then the next day, I think it was pretty much, or maybe two days later, I did my first prom. I can't remember what it was, but I remember feeling like it went really well. And it was one of those ones where the adrenaline takes over and it's not until you finish that you start to panic and feel the, you know, the nerves, as it were. Um, and I was full of it. I, th I thought I'd done okay. I was really, really pleased. And then the next day, I went to interview John Drummond, who had a flat just down the road from the Apple Hall and was the controller of the proms at the time. And this was for Music Machine. And I was so excited because he was a real hero. And I said, oh, I, I did my did my first live prom last night. And he said to me, he said, yes, uh, too much chat, I heard. Uh, he didn't say it was terrible, so I went with that, really. Uh, the, the I heard would slightly... Uh, yeah, so someone else told him. Someone else told him. Yes, exactly. Tell me, tell me what, tell what's, what's going on in the station <laughs> at the moment. Well, we just had... Uh, to yeah, exactly. Too much chat. Uh, too so. much chat, yes. yeah, yeah. But I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, it was, when I left Radio 3 in 2005, the only thing I really missed was 
presented the proms. Right. Because I, I felt like I knew, I knew it. I knew the proms. I knew the rhythm of the proms. I felt I knew how it worked, the process of it. Even the little things like, you know, when the leader comes on, the timing of the leader coming on, how long it takes them to get from the from backstage to the front and the conductor and all the rest of it. I felt it was part of me. So when I ended up doing it, I think I felt ready to do that particular broadcast. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of them because because I didn't have children. I was happy not to go on holiday in the summer and hoover up everyone else's work while they were off on their holidays. So I did. that's why I ended up doing a lot of proms because I was happy not to go on holiday. I'd wait until later in the year to do it. So I did a lot of them. Do you um, know how many? No, but Roughly. I mean, dozens and dozens and yeah. dozens of them. Um, but the proms was the thing. I mean, I just, I just loved the atmosphere of it. I loved the hall. I loved the opportunity, as I still do, of going in the hall when there's no one else in there and just standing on that stage when there's literally no one else in that hall, as it sometimes is the case. And you're just standing there and you look at this vast, you know, building and think, and think of all the history of that place. And it is a real privilege. And then things, people start to come in and, you know, and the orchestra starts to tune up and all that. I loved all of that. What I didn't like was the box itself because it was so small. And in those days as well, I mean, it's much better now, but it got hot in that hall. When it was hot outside, it was unbearable in that hall. Mm. But the trouble with the box was it's so small in depth. So you, there was enough space for you to have a couple of guests, and often my parents would come and sit near me. We're talking in the Radio 3 box. In the Radio 3 box. Yeah, that's that one over to the stage right. Yes, exactly. And so you're in the front bit, in the hall itself, as it were, and then there's glass, and behind that is the producer and the sound engineer. Um, and so I'd have guests, and guests, of course, who sat there, they weren't allowed to clap because it would come on the microphone. But one of the things that really struck me when I first started, and this changed, of course, was you had the old-fashioned lip mics. And so, yeah, which would li literally sit on your lip. You know, they had a thing. So it was always at the right distance. And these were the ones that I was associated with people like David Coleman, you know, doing the athletics. And there, yeah. And there, so there I was, that was a great thrill. And I bet the microphone I used was very old. But of course... Did it have BBC in old letters on the front? No, it, I wish it had. But yeah, wouldn't that be great? But what it did have was the smell of the person who'd done it the day before. <laughs> the COVID. And, you know, if that person had, let's say, smoked cigars or something, you could smell it. It was horrible. I mean, you'd never get away with it now. And you'd, in the, at the end of the first half, you'd be talking and introducing probably the interval feature, which would be played, played from Broadcasting House. And while this is happening, the people who are sitting in front of you in the audience are walking past you and saying, oh, hello, oh, I know you, you're from Radio 3, and you'd be still be broadcasting. And you'd have to develop a, a look that said, please go away, I'm still <laughs> working. Uh, but also being nice, of course, because you're the sort of face of, of Radio 3 at that point. So that was, that was hard work. You know, I mean, you could do a few uh, hand the, signals, but no. they, don't, they don't tend to go down very well no. because... You know, I mean, this was pre-social media. Can you imagine if you did that now? <laughs> Natalie Ween would be laughed, spinning in a classic FM. Yes. Yeah. She's still around, though. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, my goodness. Um, I think those kind of moments... I mean, you're, you're aware you're talking to the nation. I mean, you're, you're talking to the nation of Radio 3 listeners, you yes. know, which is basically your mum, your dad, <laughs> a couple of retired antiques dealers and some people in their own counties and 
people who are trying to find something else on there. Well, the proms is their most listened to thing. In, let's be fair. To it is okay. The proms so. is easily the, yeah, the I'm, most. I'm, jo thing. I'm joking. <laughs> and I'm joking and being satirical, but you know. But you're right, of course. You know, but the fact is, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, you're talking to a lot of people, mm. and I don't mean to belittle that. And there is this feeling of, you know, you've got to get this right in some way, mm. and um, a responsibility to say that, um, and. You know, we're improvising this conversation now, uh, but there's no, you know, we can edit it if something goes wrong. Yeah. In that moment, it's not editable. No. It goes out and you say, fuck, accidentally, or yeah. when you drop your pen or whatever it is, and that's it, it's yeah. gone. Uh, there's no way out of that. Well, and of course, I mean, I remember doing a, youth, a national youth orchestra, a Great Britain prom, I think it was, and there were, for whatever reason, I don't even remember what the reason was, I had to do a lot of filling, and I ended up saying... You know how your brain works or doesn't work sometimes. You know, the orchestra's full of men, women, and... And I realised I'd run out of options. <laughs> so I just said viola players, because that was the only thing I could think of. So, um, but those are those moments where you... Because you're, you're so busy being ahead of yourself, thinking, what am I going to say next, whilst you're still saying the thing you're saying, mm. that your tongue and your brain don't always connect <laughs> but the, i for me those are the fun bits i think almost everyone would say as a if they're live broadcasters that there's a part of you that hopes something goes wrong because otherwise it's a bit dull i mean it's not massively difficult to read a script out in time um and you know do it all in the right places you learn techniques you learn how to do it but when it all goes wrong, that's when you become you as a broadcaster. And, the, and, and of course, the audience loves it when things go wrong, really. Don't, of course they do. Um, so I used to quite, I quite enjoyed those bits, I have to admit, Jim. Now, you also, um, a big forte of yours is film music. Yep. And you presented, I mean, now, and you're living, presented, well, yeah. part of your living. I know you do many things, so I don't want to... <laughs> Pigeonhole. It's mostly, but um, you are presenting film music concerts, mm -hmm. and you did one for the proms as well. I well, mean, you I, many you wrote, you wrote scripts. I wrote you did scripts more. for them. Yeah, well, yeah. they did. They did um, a couple of big film music proms before before they became much more um, before John Wilson regular. Before John Wilson, um, one of the first one I did was I scripted for Tim West, which was great because I was a big fan of Tim West, and actually that for me, it was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done because I wrote a few jokes for him. Um, but I did them in a style that made it look as though he'd just thought of them. And because he's such a great actor, he made the audience think he'd just thought of them and they got big laughs. And I sat there grinning like a Cheshire cat because that had never happened to me before. I've never thought of myself as a comedy writer, but I managed to write some jokes that people thought were funny. And the next one I did, which was a special BAFTA tribute at the proms, was with Richard E. Grant. And that was really hard work, it has to be said, because um, he didn't really get the whole presenting thing at all. We had to work with him a lot. And I was really nervous because, you know, he's a big star. And the director of the TV coverage, because it was live on BBC Two, who I knew, I said to him, I said, I'm really bothered by this because he's just looking straight down the camera at the autocue. He's not communicating with the audience. Uh, in the rehearsals, and he said, tell him, he's an actor, tell him. I thought, really, should give I? So I? Give did. him direction. So I did tell him, and it was much better that way. You know, the amazing thing about that night, they, BAFTA asked me to write a speech for Richard Attenborough, because he was the uh, head of, uh, chairman of BAFTA, whatever it was at that point. So he was coming on to do a special speech. 
because um, their whole concert was, I mean, it's wonderful, all, all British, mostly British film music, you know, right. celebrating BAFTA. And so, and I thought that's a bit odd, you know, it's Richard Attenborough, I mean, if it, he knows what he's talking about and he knows more about BAFTA than I do, uh, he's been doing it long enough. But I, they said, no, no, he, he's insisted. So I wrote this speech for him. And then on the day I went into his dressing room and said to him, look, I just wanted to let you know that it's such a privilege to, to write for you. And, you know, I love your films. We had a friend in common because his composer was George Fenton, who'd done almost all of his movies. And George was a good friend of mine. So that was nice. But he said, to, he said look, um, I hope you don't mind, but I'd actually quite like to do my, my own speech. <laughs> And I said, honestly, I told them that that's what they should do. It was just a privilege to do it. I think that's exactly the right decision. You go for it. And I thought, isn't that wonderful? How lovely of him <coughs> to be nice enough to say it. And we chatted about that a little bit. Anyway, it was fine. So then I took my place in the audience. And the concert's happening and Richard E. Grant is slightly fluffing my jokes. And then he introduces Attenborough. On comes Richard Attenborough and then does my speech word for word. And I still don't really understand why he did that or whether it is that he'd absorbed my speech so much that he thought it was his speech. <laughs> I don't know. But I was, again, sitting there grinning like a Cheshire cat. I couldn't believe it. You know, here was Attenborough speaking my words. That was absolutely amazing. The only thing that ever trumped it was writing a speech for Stephen Hawking, who came on when I, I did, I produced... Um, we did Interstellar, the movie, with live orchestra, which I worked with Hans Zimmer on. And I managed to get Stephen Hawking to introduce it, you know, like you do. And he came, but he asked me to, they asked me to write his script for him. So there I wrote his script and there it was being said in that iconic electronic voice. <laughs> it was amazing. But yeah. Did you have to program it in? Look at that. Is that a picture of you and Steve? Steve, there you are. Ugh, blimey, I wish I had a picture of someone. Amazing, that was an amazing thing. I'm, so I'm, yeah, he so they program myself it in. with Julian Mayers, gone. <laughs> yeah, so they program it in and, you know, out it goes. That was, that was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I love doing that with the problem because that was another aspect of the problems, of course. Yeah. And having to write scripts to time and then, and trying to second guess what the actors were going to do and all that. I really liked doing that. It was, it was great fun. Let me just let me just ask you, if you don't mind, mm. what does the proms mean to you? For me, the proms is all about the the experience. It's not just the music. One of my favourite proms I ever went to was um, the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain in the eighties, mid eighties, doing Guru Leader by Schoenberg. Schoenberg before he became Schoenberg. Big romantic score, fantastic. Me and, uh, I knew quite a few people in the National Youth Orchestra, so I wanted to go to that anyway. But, and it was the hot ticket always every year, the, young, the National Youth Orchestra hot ticket. But, in the, but you had to queue up, of course, if you wanted to be in the arena. And so my mum and I queued up from, I think, maybe nine or ten in the morning. We were there all day, like you did, you were in those days, if you wanted to be on the front, which we did. And so there was all that camaraderie of, of being in the queue working out when you were going to go and get your sandwiches and your cup of tea and everything, because you couldn't leave your post or you couldn't both leave your post like you could later in, uh, in, in, late, in later years. But we got to the front row and by that point, of course, by seven o'clock, you are absolutely wired for it. You know, you can't wait. You've been there all day. This is the big moment. We're right there in front. Jesse Norman was the wood dove in Gurley to that. 
that day. Boulez conducting. And we were right under Jesse Norman's nostrils. This is not a place you forget to be being amazing. That was one hell of an experience. And that to me kind of summed, sums up everything that was great about the proms. That community spirit, I suppose, of the queuing up. Um, and then the amazing atmosphere in that arena, which is easily the best place to be, to listen. Acoustically, that hall is dreadful. We all know this. Um, and in fact, I've, I've been to proms where I've thought it was terrible and someone who was sitting somewhere else thought it was amazing and vice versa. Um, but the arena has always been the best place to be. Somewhere um, middle back, I would say, is probably the best place to be. Behind what, the fountain. I don't even know if the fountain's there. The fountain's not there. It's not there. So don't know what's happened. The fountain, the fountain started in the yeah. uh, 19th century and for some reason it's now just a, some markings on the linoleum. But that, that to me is what the problem is. It's that kind of an event thing and although we went to quite a lot so you know i mean it was always it always felt special that's the thing there was something special about that atmosphere and even when you're working at it i think everyone who's presented the proms will tell you that it is special it's different to other concerts that you might do in other venues and in other situations even other concerts in the Abel hall there's something about the proms that's that's pretty special it's part of the history but it's, it's part of that ritual of the, of the queuing up, which of course they don't have to do now. You just get your arena ticket online. I think that's such a shame. They should do half and half. They should do half of them available online and the other half for people who want to queue up and have a good time doing that. I do think the proms need something funny attached to it. It sounds like a, I mean, it's a stupid way of putting it, but I've always thought that it, it's terribly serious. I mean, it does take itself quite seriously, I think, the proms. Uh, John Sessions and I put together a whole template of stuff that we were going to do, actually. And then I'd, I can't even remember how it didn't work in the end, but we were going to have him play a prommer. It was television. Uh, you know, like he, he, he could do that, where he would just you would put him in makeup and make him look like someone else. And he could just become that person and integrate with the real prommers. Because the prommers, with a capital P, of course, are a different breed altogether. They're the front rowers. The ones that I've seen literally tell children, you can't stand here, you didn't queue up. Yeah, we, we, Things like we've, that. we've interviewed some of them. Yeah, all that lot. Um, and I wanted John in the middle of them, pretending to be one of them right. for comedy purposes. A little, it was a little series and um, you know, we did a lot of writing on it, we created characters and all the rest of it. But I think Proms needs something like that. Some, someone to come along and puncture it a bit. Because we're talking about classical music, we, Everyone's so obsessed with this idea that everyone's got to love them all the time. Mm. Um, and they're worried that um, people think they're snobby or, uh, you know, inclusive or not inclusive. And, 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 and so that all anyone ever says is how good classical music is for you. And I would imagine anybody who isn't in classical music gets fed up the back teeth of being told all the time how good classical music is for them. If only they get into classical music, they could be a better person. You know, there's all these, all these reports. Oh, if your child does music, he's going to be a better person. Well, I mean, there's an enormous benefit to music. It's wonderful, and I've benefited from it myself. But it's not the only bloody thing that children could do that benefits them. And uh, I feel we, everyone's, everyone always takes on the responsibility of the entire industry whenever they speak about it, mm. which I think is a bit of a problem, and I think it needs someone to come along and puncture it a bit. I think also, yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think, uh, in the sense that one other feature is, 
to me, not all the Schubert sonatas are equally good, for no. example. Not all the bass, and it's, but if you say to people, I don't really like, I don't think it's very good, I like that one, I don't like that one. Oh, they're all, they're all gems. Yeah. It's like an insult. I, I you know, I'm playing the viola very badly and uh, discussing this with the, the, the Bach cello suites and the viola is the only thing you can play is very, put that much of that out of. But the fact is, you know, I don't, I, this, I don't really like that one. The first one and the sixth one, yeah. the rest of them, I don't really like, oh, they're all gems. It's like an insult to the whole concept of Bach to not love them all, and actually yeah. no. And I think that sense of expectation, when people go to a concert and they get a little bit of a meh reaction, is I should be really massively elated by this and I'm not. And actually, well, that's what we, if, you, if you're an honest member of the audience, you also think that too. This is something we should have talked about briefly, is actually the thing that drives me crazy about problems presentation now, and in fact, presentation generally, already three, is everything is amazing. Everything is always amazing. And everything isn't always amazing. But, uh, and I'm fed up with people telling me that something's amazing when there's every chance I didn't think it was amazing at all. And, but the problem with it is, because they won't say that something's terrible, it totally makes their opinion void. Because if, if you genuinely think everything's amazing, then you're, not in, you're in the wrong job. Where's the critical faculty gone? It's disappeared. And we don't have any format for it either on radio now. And Radio 3 is so awful at this now. There's a new generation of presenters who seem obsessed with this idea that everyone should, they should be advocates for everything, just in case you're not convinced. They need to be the ones to convince you. Thanks, Tommy Pearson. Well, that's about it. Don't forget that all the Proms concerts are available live on BBC Radio 3 and on demand through the BBC Sounds app. You can also get in touch with us at www.promsinthepub.co.uk where all our episodes will be available until the sun expands into a red giant taking in the earth and everything else with it. In honour of Tommy's movie music activities, he is, as he says himself, fairly confident he has hosted more John Williams concerts than anyone else in the world. Our regular special guest, Harry the Piano, harrythepiano.com, has concocted this. Movie music is the new classical music, so they say. Or, in Harry's hands, movie music and classical music are pretty much the same thing. This is Darth Vader's Imperial March, reimagined by uh, Franz Liszt. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.